Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello and welcome to In Social Work. I'm your host, Charles Sims. Are you considering adding technology or social media assignments to your coursework? If so, you will want to listen to this episode. In it, Dr. Nancy Smith, Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work, talks with four social work educators about how they have incorporated technology-mediated assignments in their courses. Karen Segoda is an instructor at the School of Social Work at Bridgewater State University. She has a MSW from the University of Missouri-Columbia. Ms. Zagoda began hosting online social work chats in 2000 and is currently a collaborator and chat host for Twitter chats that focus on macro social work practice. She has previously written a technology column for the New Social Worker magazine and has served as an AmeriCorps VISTA member. She was also a project coordinator with the Community Technology Center Network, working on digital divide issues. Ms. Zagoda's research and teaching interests include technology in social work and education, macro social work, social policy, and research methods. Melanie Sage is an assistant professor and director of the Bachelors of Science in Social Work program at the University of North Dakota. Dr. Sage holds a PhD in social work and research from Portland State University and a MSW from East Carolina University. She has trained over a thousand social workers in the ethical use of social media and is especially interested in how technology is used in child welfare practice and in social work classrooms. Jonathan Singer is an associate professor at Loyola University, Chicago. He is also the founder and host of the Social Work Podcast. Dr. Singer graduated from the University of Texas, Austin, with a Master's of Science in Social Work, and he received his Ph.D. in Social Work from the University of Pittsburgh. His practice, teaching, and scholarship focuses on suicide intervention, cyberbullying, family-based intervention, community services, school social work, technology, and podcast. Lori Goldkind is an associate professor at Fordham University. She holds a MSW from SUNY Stony Brook, and she received her PhD from the Wolzweiler School of Social Work at Yeshiva University. Dr. Goldkind's current research includes technology implementation and information and communication technology tools in human services and non-for-profits, as well as social justice and civic engagement in organizational life. In this podcast, our guests provide examples of technology-mediated assignments that they have developed for their classes. Their examples include Twitter chat, digital storytelling, creating press releases of social work research, and technology planning for organization. They also share their thoughts about and experiences with 
using technology-mediated assignments to increase the digital and technology literacy of future social workers. Our guests were interviewed by Dr. Nancy Smith, Dean of the School of Social Work at the University at Buffalo. This podcast was recorded in April of 2016. Hi, this is Nancy Smith, and I'm really pleased today we have the opportunity to interview a group of people who presented a really interesting presentation at a conference, and they've agreed to come here and talk with us. We have Karen Zagoda, Dr. Melanie Sage, and Dr. Jonathan Singer, and Dr. Lori Goldkind. The presentation was Integrating Theory and Practice, Meaningful Technology-Mediated Assignments for Real-World Learning. Thank you all for joining me, and I'm excited about this because it's a topic near and dear to my heart, but I guess I would like to just sort of open by asking you all to say why you decided to do this presentation, and then maybe we can hear more about it. And I know we have a lot of people here, so let me ask Karen to start it off, since you're the lead person, what you were looking for to achieve with this presentation. I was really hoping to talk to people about how to engage people with technology in a way that we haven't really done, I feel, as a field on the whole. But I think it's important to look at how we can integrate it with both our practice and our students. And I was sort of hoping to provide one particular example that I had a lot of experience with, which is mainly using Twitter as one way to look at new media literacies. Okay, so. That was one type of assignment, and um, I know that you guys had several that you talked about. Uh, somebody had talked a little bit about digital storytelling, and I, I'm not sure who that was. Could someone speak a little bit about just sort of an overview of that before we get into details? Yeah, hi, this is Jonathan. I spoke about digital storytelling, and one of the things about digital storytelling that it really ties in nicely with social work is that you know, social workers are always getting stories, and we oftentimes think about different types of stories being all about client experiences, but there are many other kinds of stories that, that students can explore and think about that can provide real insight into a field setting, a neighborhood, a supervisor's experience, that sort of thing. And thinking about the use of technology is pretty remarkable because this uses of, of storytelling or of technology means that there are different ways that we can capture different types of stories. Okay, great. So we've got Twitter chats and then storytelling, very different sorts of ways of using technology. And then I think the other two options were agency level technology opportunities assessment and then research papers um, transforming them into press releases. So. Would each of you like to say something briefly about that before we delve in a little bit more? This is Melanie Sage. I think one of the really nice threads across all of our work is that we've all thought about ways to get students prepared to present their work for public consumption or to take it beyond the classroom. So one of the ways that I've done that with students is by replacing the traditional research paper in my advanced practice with families class into a press release about the research. So I ask students to look at social work press releases and then think about how they would introduce a research paper in layman's term to a public audience. 
and I think this achieves a number of things. One of them is that they really have to understand the paper and how it relates to the world and practice. And two, they have to think about who might read this and what they would want to know. And three, they have to figure out the most important pieces to share. What I've found that this does, <laughs> besides make a paper much easier to grade for me, is that it gets students to think about what's valuable, how to use good editing to narrow down to snippets, and how to present themselves to a public audience. Then our last option was the Technology Opportunities Assessment, which I'm assuming is Lori Goldkind. Can you say a few things about <laughs> yeah. that to give an overview? Sure, sure. So I come at the work a little bit different in terms of trying to help students see not so much a particular tool, but sort of how to make strategic choices in an agency setting because the tech is changing so rapidly, how do they make choices that are faithful to sort of the goals of the organization? And so the assignment I talked about in that presentation was how do you do technology planning with limited resources from a cost-benefit perspective about understanding if you have sort of two tools to choose from, how do you make a kind of a longer range investment in a way that's going to be to kind of maximize everybody's resources, training, having people get on board, and then understanding that the tech is going to change kind of relatively rapidly, but making sure that it's faithful for what the goal of the agency is. And I have them do that in sort of a 360 perspective. So looking at an environmental scan, what's going on in the outside world, and what are the goals they want to reach with that piece of technology, and similarly inside the agency, and sort of how is the tool faithful to the outcome that they want to achieve. So, Karen, you said a little bit about the Twitter chats, and before we sort of get into a little more detail about how you guys go about doing all of these, can you just say a little bit more about that? Sure. So we have a macro social work chat that focuses on bringing together students and practitioners and researchers interested in macro social work. We have chats every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, although for Social Work Month we were able to collaborate with a bunch of other chats around the world, which is really awesome. But let me read some information here about why I think Twitter-based conversation can add to existing education and practice. And some of this work comes from Dr. Laurel Hitchcock and Dr. Jimmy Young. They've actually written an article published in the Journal of Social Work and Education talking about how to use our Twitter chat as an assignment for students. I like the fact that it has active participation and real-time conversation with experts in the field and academics all over the world. The learning itself can be revisited in public archives or chat transcripts, creates networking and collaboration opportunities across zip codes, time zones, continents, and hemispheres. I also like how it encourages students to become active participants in conversation that is actually shaping the field. It helps them develop their professional identity, increase media literacy, practice ethical technology use, things like that. Okay, great. So all of you have sort of talked a little bit about overview of these assignments, but I guess let me ask you all to speak a little bit about what do you really think students are getting out of these assignments when you've used them in classes? Yeah, this is Lori. I have thought about sort of a subsequent assignment that's probably more in line with the other assignments where like I have folks go. I also teach a lot of policy analysis and policy practice where I've started to use sort of as a backup assignment around intersectionality 
letting folks do selfie assignment where they go out into the field, they take a, a bunch of selfies, and then they use those selfies to describe their own intersectionality and the intersectionality of the pieces that they see in their community. I mean, my goal for using the tech, and even in the tech plan, is to use it as a hook to have them be thinking critically and thinking strategically about sort of how they are making investments in time and resources, right? Because I think particularly with the technology plan and for people who are going to be future administrators, that being able to think through those decisions strategically is a really important skill set. And so because those resources, they're finite, right? And they're, the tool itself is fixed and always, there's always going to be something new and shiny and dramatic. But the agency structure kind of stays, we know agency change is hard and resources are thin. And so I really want to use those assignments as backdoor critical thinking tools. Absolutely. I think the critical thinking piece is important. And we know that adult learners appreciate their learning more when it has good transferability to practice. So when I talk about having students do press releases, you know, this is something that they can see. It's when I go out into an agency, that might be something that I'll actually do. And students don't often feel that way about a research paper, even though we hope that it's engaging them in critical thinking and about resources. Those same skills are necessary to put together a press release. So we're not losing anything in the transfer of the assignment. We're actually gaining that application to real-world practice, and we're gaining the, the theoretical support for using the adult learning basis of transferability. And the research also supports that students perform better for a world audience than they do for a single person audience of their instructor. This is Karen. I've always said that it's not necessarily a matter of if we use technology, but it's a matter of how we use the technology. I feel like a lot of times that social worker voices tend to be missing from conversations and decisions around technology just because there tends to be so much confusion and fear about how to proceed with technology in practice, which drives avoidance and not necessarily solutions, which does that disservice to our clients who may expect our practitioners and services to meet them where they're already at. You know, this has been a really interesting conversation because it touches on so many pieces of both what we're wanting out of social work students and practitioners, but also expectations for technology. I really like what Lori was talking about, about using technology to think critically about what it is we do, where we're doing it, how we're doing it. Karen, what you were saying about really getting the social work voice out there in the conversation, but I think that the assignment that I was talking about, this digital storytelling, it takes something that I think is implicit in the experience of social work, but we rarely make explicit. Right, We have process recordings where students are supposed to take snippets of conversations and then write them down from memory. And, and I know that there are a lot of pros and cons to the process recording, but the idea of telling a story is not actually something that we train our students to do very well. In fact, we train them to strip away a lot of the story and just get down to the basics. So we tell students, don't write a lengthy narrative when you're doing your progress notes. You actually just want to identify what their goal was, how well they did on it that week, and what the plan is for next week. And so it strips out a lot of the humanity. But I think a lot of people go into social work because they're fascinated by the stories. One of the digital storytelling assignments I think is so unusual 
and really isn't something that we already do, is to do a soundscape of a field site. So what students would do is they would take their iPhones or their Androids or whatever phone they have. They don't have to spend money on another digital recorder. They could, but they don't have to. Um, and what they do is they literally record themselves going from a home site to a field site. And there's no narration. If their clients take a bus, we ask them, you take a bus, get on the bus, record the sounds of the bus, record the feet walking onto the bus, the sound of the sitting down on the seat. Are there overhead announcements? What does it sound like as you're walking from the bus stop to the agency? What kind of door? What does it sound like in the waiting room? Now, of course, we talk about confidentiality and making sure that there's no identifying words or names or things like that. What is it like when you're actually meeting with the clinician? Right? And then what does it sound like when you leave? So there's a, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to the story. But the beautiful thing about a soundscape is it doesn't have to be a linear narrative. Right? So if there are multiple instances of somebody going through a door, the student could edit those doors together. And so these are all the ways that clients experience going in or out of something. And what this does is it heightens a sense of place, of environment for the client experience and also for anybody else who is going in and out. You know, we think a lot about kind of more macro level things in the abstract, but I think this soundscape assignment really takes the community, the environment, and it brings it to the foreground so that people can think more critically about it. And again, the assignments are not long recordings, even though the original recordings might be 45 minutes long, the final product might be a two minute edited down version, and then you can play them in class, suddenly people who have been talking about, oh, well, I work in inpatient setting, I work in detention, I work for hospice, I work for this, that, and the other thing, suddenly everybody can hear what might be different and what might be similar in these different settings. And so this is not something we do. We don't bring the sounds of the field into the classroom, but this assignment allows you to do that, and I think opens up whole new venues of conversation whole different experience for a classroom. Yes. Whether that's a place-based classroom or one that's online, you could do it there as well. So Interesting. So what do people see students are getting out of some of the other assignments? I'm curious about the Twitter assignment. Karen, if you want to say anything about what you see people take away from that. Well, you can actually find the assignment and the abstract from the article on our website, which is macrosw.com. So anybody who wants information about that assignment can feel free to visit us and download that information there. Now, there are professors who do it and use it in a number of ways, and we're kind of working with a few different professors to get different assignments in there for the fall. And what's worked really well has been when the assignment is paired with the documentary movie night. They always try to choose something that is freely available. And typically, the professor will have a series of questions prepared, and the students need to come to the chat, tweet their answers, and have conversation based around those questions. As someone who's been involved with the chat but has not done this assignment with students but has been there sort of hosting, these are the most voluminous chats because nobody tweets like someone getting graded on it. It's not unusual for a chat to have a thousand tweets just from the students and it's kind of amazing the level of quality that they bring, the passion that they bring and there's that sort of initial discomfort with the assignment. I'm out there, I'm saying something, what if I say something I don't want to say? I always try to comfort that with, if you want to see it in the New York Times, say it out loud. If you want your mother to see it, say it out loud. And if 
both of those things apply, you can probably tweet it and you're probably going to be okay. But quoting and sort of sharing different resources, different facts and figures or political cartoons that might be relevant and make that point are all things that students bring to that setting. And the feedback we've gotten from students who have participated in those in similar assignments is that they really feel like they're able to participate in this conversation with people from all over the country about an issue that's really important to them. And I think that is one of the big takeaways is just showing them and sort of demonstrating and kind of walking them through how that can be possible for them. I'm kind of constantly surprised how unengaged my folks can be with the larger world and community. We talk a lot about our folks are busy and they have jobs and families and lives. They are complicated and many of them will take back-to-back -back classes from like 8 o'clock in the morning till 5 o'clock at night. And so policy class, raise your hand if you're on Twitter or raise your hand if you read the newspaper or you listen to the news on the way in. And folks are kind of really disconnected just having them engage in that discourse on Twitter is really powerful because I think it opens the door to a bigger reality that makes meaningful very instantaneously stuff that I can only talk about in the front of the room, but all of a sudden they're participating in things that are unfolding in real time in a way that's much more telling than anything we can provide for them at the front of the room. Well, I think that one of the things that's important about this is that if people have used Twitter before they got into a professional setting, they probably didn't use it professionally. And if they have used their iPhone to record things, it hasn't been a professional way. And if they haven't, then they just don't understand it. Very few students get excited about reading research articles. It really takes a long time sort of delving into the literature to be like, oh my god, that's what's amazing about this. You know, I really think that that's one of the things that we do is that we open a door so that people who have but not in this way or have not get excited about it and know how to use it as a tool. This is the idea of the digital literacy. Exactly. So there's ways for them to get excited and to see some possibilities in the tools that they've maybe not thought about as professional tools before. So let me ask, though, what are the practical downsides of trying to do these kinds of tech-mediated assignments? Sometimes the technology doesn't do what we like, which is fine. <laughs> we are all problem solvers, and it is great. I think one of the biggest concerns students have is, oh, am I going to be associated with this? I don't want to go out there with my name. There's this perception that to be on social media, you have to be negative, like you're going into a boxing ring. And you know that's out there, but that's not the full landscape of what's out there. I always tell them, you do fantastic work at your internships. Shouldn't the entire community know that that's available as a resource and how they can get involved and the impact that that has? And with social media, what some professors do is they allow them to create kind of an anonymous account that they create for their class assignment, sometimes even professors who use blogging assignments do that as well, and if that's the best solution for that student, that might be what works best. But I think it's more empowering to really encourage them to develop their own voice in whatever way that that makes sense. Yeah, so I think students definitely have a legitimate question. Will this mm -hmm. have negative repercussions on me? Either mm -hmm. because I was voting an opinion that I didn't realize was controversial, and that might come back to bite me later on, or that I did, but I was doing so because I was required to take a position for my class. And I think that that's something that we're still trying to figure out. And the more that we do this, the better we'll be able to answer. So I think that's a legitimate concern. Not one that should stop people, but legitimate. For my assignment, one of the biggest downsides or barriers is that people don't do this. 
right? This is not something mm -hmm. that social workers do. They're not like, oh, I'm going to record a story on my cell phone. And so the idea of it is very foreign, and not just for the students, but for the faculty, perhaps more so for the faculty. And so for me, one of the biggest barriers of disseminating this assignment or having this assignment be widely adopted is just basic comfort in saying, well, how do I record something on my iPhone and then get it to a computer? How would I edit it? And then how do I play something that seems to be so amorphous as just sounds and make it mean anything? Until you go through it, you really have no idea how powerful it can be. And so I think the newness of that assignment in particular is problematic for widespread adoption because of its unfamiliarity. Along with the newness, adapting to a new assignment, there's also a time consideration. And often we have to kind of coach students through how to use the new technology, which means that we have to learn it ourselves as instructors well enough to teach it to somebody else. And for me, there's always that balance about is this time spent worth it to the student, to what it's going to take away from our other instructional time, and is it transferable enough, or does it bring enough value added that we're going to invest in that in this class? So our faculty got really energized by the podcast assignment, and Dr. Stringer came to school and shared with faculty about possible adaptions of the assignment. And I tried to adapt the assignment, a podcast assignment, in one of my summer school courses. And I think that I underestimated two things. I underestimated, one, the level of technological assistance that students would need to be able to be successful, and also the internal infrastructure just is not robust enough to support students to do that well, both on my own part, but also just sort of in, we have very limited resources for faculty infrastructure of technology support, and thus even a step out from that, the tech support for students is really limited. So just to use software and editing tools if they had questions to be supported in that work, the, the infrastructure was really shaky. But then in terms of scaffolding their own knowledge about what a good podcast sounds like, you know, I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts. I, I have a really good mental model for that. Some of my folks really didn't. Essentially what they did was they took kind of a long interview and they presented it as a podcast, which was not really in the spirit of the assignment at all. You know, that's a really, really important point that you brought up about how Boredom brought me to talk about tech. You said, okay, I'm going to do this, and then it didn't work for a bunch of reasons. And so what would you say would need to be done differently? Right. So if I was going to revisit that, I think I would scaffold it much differently, right? So I think I would give them an assignment to go out and find a podcast that they connect to first. And then maybe they would bring back a two-minute clip and talk about why they felt like that was really successful in audio and share it with the class or share it with a partner and talk about it with a partner. And then they would step out from that and identify who would make a high-quality interview in audio. And they would have to share back with the class why, and then maybe a technical assistance piece, and just be a lot more hands-on about sort of each step across the way. And some of my folks were really successful. I think that in every class that works out, there's going to be really high performers, and some people really figured it out independent of any instruction. But I think just generally speaking, they would everybody would have been less frustrated if they had better models at each 
intersection about sort of this is what a really great podcast sounds like. We make assumptions about mm -hmm. younger people and their skill sets in technology. And people talk about the difference between digital natives and digital immigrants. And yet, I'm struck by the variation that you're seeing in your own student populations and the danger in us sort of assuming that all of those skill sets are there. What kinds of things have you all tr tried to build into your assignments so that you don't work on the assumption that students know what they're doing or how they should be doing it. This is Karen. A lot of the students that I work with, they tend to be a lot of first-generation students, a lot of immigrants, those kinds of populations. So what tends to be very important for those kinds of students is real-world practical application. Like, why am I learning this? Like, there's this sort of natural analytical ability that kicks in as soon as they're confronted with an assignment like this. I think the first thing to start with is just sort of demonstrating and showing them that this is how you're going to be use this in practice and this is why this skill is going to be a resource and an asset to you on a very tight job market. If you're able to help your agencies that you eventually work with with social media, develop social media policy, even just to raise some of those questions about how to be using this stuff better and really sort of to describe it as a marketable skill if they've never really conceived of learning. Those students tend to have employability and marketability on their brains right at the forefront. And I always try to respond to that at first. So now that we're using something that will enhance ourselves and possibly enhance our own professional development, possibly enable you to engage with other social workers doing similar kinds of work, um, okay, now what, is, what else does this mean? What else does this imply? What are some other implications that that can have for us? One of the things that I've done is I found myself coaching students through a lot of the same processes over and over, so I've made quite a few tutorial videos on YouTube, so I have stu students oh, cool. start there, and, and, and then I do individual follow-up with students who need a little extra. I find a lot of times it's normalizing the fear of new media, and especially for returning students that feel like that they don't have the technology skills that they assume younger students have. We talk about how much easier it is to do some of these things that people assume it will be, and that I'm going to be here and we're in it together. I find that those kinds of reassurances really make a difference. You know, one thing that I also think is important, and I have not done a good job of this, but I, <laughs> but I still think it's a good idea, is if we think about the component pieces of all of the assignments we're talking about, it would be unreasonable to expect any of us to train our students to be able to do all of it in a single semester class. But if students are being asked, for example, to go onto Twitter, in their foundation year, and then in their advanced year, there's another assignment that requires them to do something else with Twitter. Then there's scaffolding that can happen. Same thing with the podcast. You know, Lori, I love what you were saying about uh, find a podcast you like, right? We assign, I think probably most of us on this call or the interview assign podcast episodes. How much feedback do we get from students about what did they like about it? Right? Do we actually talk about them or do we just sort of use them as audio versions of articles where we assign them and we may or may not get to them in class, but if we had something that was more structured in the way the course sequences happen so that it was part of the assignment was in your foundation year that you would listen to podcasts and then you knew that in your second year or whatever your advanced year was, 
that you would be required to make a podcast. I think it would be a very different experience for everybody on board. I like what you say there, Jonathan, because I think it's not like the scaffolding aspect is very important, but you also touched it on how this should be sort of integrated throughout the curriculum. And I think that's also important too. So it's not just one project in one class, but it's sort of something that builds off content in other courses as well. I hope that the new technology standards will encourage a little more of this, thinking about how technology is implemented across the curriculum. Because one of the challenges for me is that it's a new assignment. Like somebody else said earlier, the students haven't been exposed and it gives them anxiety. And it's harder for me to convince my colleagues to try some of this stuff than it is for me to convince my students. Well, and, and that's the point actually I, I wanted to raise, Melanie, is that I think if we're going to see it integrated across the curriculum, then it requires that it move beyond a couple of faculty members implementing this to all faculty considering it. That's a, a larger challenge in terms of both the kind of supports that universities will offer for faculty, as Lori raised earlier, but I also think colleagues who struggle with the relevance of this and whether they see it as relevant for social work. I mean, I, I'm struck by a conversation I heard with a colleague not that long ago who basically sort of wrote off doing anything with technology because, quotes, well, I'm a people person, I'm, I'm a high-touch people person was, was sort of the way it was put, and um, not seeing that as congruent with technology. And so I think part of the challenge is how do we roll these things out in ways that our peers, faculty members, can see the relevance. Well, and if we had a good textbook, that really address the role of technology in social work education, that might be an amazing resource. And if there were administrators who could serve as role models for how technology could be encouraged in faculty in schools as a whole, I think that would also be amazing. If we had those things, for sure. <laughs> I don't want to disparage the book in progress, but there is a book about technology and curricular infusion in social work, Paul Fredolino's book, and mm -hmm. that's not a new book. I, none of these are new conversations, right? The old technology standard, six years old, seven, eight years old. 2005. So, right. like, so, oh my gosh, 11 years old. So I don't feel like any of these are new conversations. I certainly don't mean to take a crack at the forthcoming book, I apologize, but there is a curricular infusion book in the world. and so. I feel like these are not new issues from our own perspective. Like we have an internal conversation at Fordham about moving classes online. We are a fully online MSW, and I can only imagine how unengaging some of our content must be in the online environment. But given how unengaging some of our content is in the classroom environment, because we're just not connecting in any meaningful way, either with what's going on in the external, right, in the world and technology, and frankly, just what's going on in the world not in technology, and sort of who's driving those conversations. So we know that social workers are not afraid of using tech, right? There's literature about that. It's more about complicated pieces around both attitude and also resources because of money and strategy and choices. Lori, I think one of the things that's really interesting about bringing up the old technology standards, like you say, that were around, I think the first set was developed like 10 or 11 years ago, we said, 
I think one of the interesting things that sort of happened, because I sort of feel like for years we would sort of have this conversation, we should be using it, we're not using it, we should be using it, we're not using it, suddenly it's 20 years later and that conversation is still the same. I think one of the things that sort of helped shift that at least a little bit, or for some people, especially students, has just been the advent of that smartphone. Like now everyone is carrying that computer in their pocket. So I won't necessarily say to a class, I have an, an activity that I prepare them for, for how to use the census app using secondary data, secondary data. And we talk about doing secondary data analysis and what are some sources. And my first question is, does everybody have a smartphone or a laptop with them? And if somebody doesn't, there's always a computer in the classroom they can use. But 99% of students are going to have a smartphone with them that they can download an app to, providing you know they remember their password and all that other stuff. But we go through that activity and they sort of see how powerful it can be to use some from their pocket. And I try to encourage them to be like, you know, we now have this resource in our pocket at a moment's disposal. Like, what are the things that we can kind of do with this? And I think there's always going to be those obstacles if we sort of instill that sense of wonder and possibility about what we can do with some of this stuff. And the other thing that I'll say is that Yes, Karen, you're absolutely right. 2005 means the standards were worked on in 2003, and tech landscape's totally different. But also, I think when the tech standards came out and when Paul's book came out, there was still a sense of this is sort of cutting edge. And I think there are some that are still thinking about technology as cutting edge, but far fewer. I think people have, have shifted to a sense of, like, I know we need to do this. We're not sure how. Or we need to do this better. How do we do this better? And so I do think that there is an attitudinal shift, either because people are terrified by all of the online courses, right? All the online programs, they're like, oh no, people are going to be able to take Fordham's online MSW and it's going to totally sort of decimate our local population. So we have to do this, right? Either it's a fear-based or it's that they've seen how entire political revolutions have been organized on Twitter and disseminated through Facebook and broadcast on YouTube. and So I do think that we are in a different time and place, and I think that there's a, a desperate need for guidance, because I think that people are more willing and able to tap into that now. You know, Jonathan, as you're talking, one of the things that occurs to me is, I, I think the largest barrier to technology for people that are not comfortable with it at, at this point in time is being able to tolerate not knowing what you're doing. I see colleagues who really struggle because it's been years since they really felt incompetent. And boy, there's nothing like technology to make <laughs> you feel incompetent, right? I mean, just as we were trying today to get this call up and running, you know, we lost 45 minutes because we were running into tech barriers. And I think in academe, we don't model that much for each other. In other words, yeah, the student role, we expect it there. But I don't think we offer a lot of support and fun and opportunity together as faculty to mess around with something and mess up with it and show that it's okay to be someone who's supposed to be knowledgeable and also have no clue. I think that that approach, that sort of co-learning together as a group with faculty, with the supports, but with the supports not being perfect, can at least make it not quite as scary for folks. I'm just a thought off the top of my head. 
this idea that having a sense of humor is an important skill to have. We sort of talk about use of self, right, in the clinical relationship, and we talk about it. We're meeting with community leaders, and obviously when we're lobbying, and sort of who are you and how do you present yourself. And, you know, one of the ways that you can use yourself is that if humor is important to you as a person, like bring it into your professional life. And you can't do technology these days without a sense of humor because this podcast episode on technology was rife with technological problems. It was a disaster until it wasn't. And if you can't laugh about it, then it's going to be miserable. And I don't see the majority of our profession in terms of faculty being particularly funny people, being particularly open to humor or like, oh yeah, that faculty meeting was so funny, ha ha ha, right? And so I think that that's a skill that we could definitely improve on. More gifts, more gifts, that'll fix everything. <laughs> I think that people are really locked into doing things the way that they've done things and that they're really fearful about stepping out of their comfort zone, and this is just an mm -hmm. observation, and that for a group of professionals who are supposed to be cultivating lifelong learning and sort of an intellectual curiosity in students, and that there's a lack of curiosity about this whole new realm that can really breathe life into material that can really bring these pieces to life. I don't think that that's only about the technology piece either. I mean, this is a complicated <laughs> question, like why are professors slow to adopt? It's yeah. also about like what institutions value and innovation in teaching methods is always a strong value in our portfolio of of work at at the university. So. Uh, I, I, I think that if program administrators want their faculty to really think about how to get better at this, then we need to think about how we reward faculty for innovating in the classroom. And I think in that frame, one of the really great things that online programming and these moves have made is that the critics of whether this can work are asking us tough questions about how do you know it works and what's your evidence and we're able to kind of push that back in the other direction and say, like, what is your evidence that what you're doing standing up in front of a face-to-face -face classroom is working? And in that way, it has the potential to, to make social work education mm -hmm. both ends. This is Nancy. We could probably go on for hours and hours about this. Maybe our listeners might not want to listen to us for hours and hours. So um, <laughs> I know that's hard to really? I'm going to do an exercise I do sometimes in my classes or in my groups, and that's if you had to create a bumper sticker to encourage people to take some risks with technology in their classes or in their practice or in their faculty meetings, what would you put out there? What would be the one thing, as we sort of think in closing, that you would put out that you think would help to capture or intrigue people into taking that step? Buy the forthcoming textbook. Oh, no, never mind. Um, the, <laughs> sorry, wrong bumper sticker. I think my bumper sticker would say something like, we can't predict the future, but we can make it. And technology is one of the ways that we're going to make an amazing future. I keep thinking of the Matrix, and I keep seeing like a picture of Morpheus being like, free your mind. That's what I see. Free your mind, huh? Okay. Teaching with technology for a public audience is supervised social work practice. Ooh, that's nice.
Oh, I was thinking more along the lines of cost-benefit analysis, something like the investment is small, but the payback is really dramatic. I think it's an apt saying because one of the things I'm hearing is that as you've all tried some of these experiments in your own classrooms and working with students, that some very amazing new levels of learning can come. So I think that's when I hear people get excited about technology, when they hear that they can create things and do things that bring incredible value that they weren't able to do before. That idea that the payoff's there and being able to get a chance to see that can be, can be helpful. Any closing thoughts before we finish up today? I think one of the closing thoughts that I would have is that if, if you're listening to this and you feel overwhelmed by the thoughts, and that overwhelm can be paired with excitement, just know that there are a lot of online communities where people are talking about these ideas, where they're trying things out, and that even though we've been invited by Nancy to talk about these things, that we're only a few of the folks of many that are doing these. And just expand on Jonathan's thought, one of the things that feeds me in this work is being connected to this group of people in particular, but also the, the online community of social work and tech, the Google Plus group. It really does sort of help boost my spirit to know that there are other folks around the country and outside the country doing similar work and thinking in similar ways and trying different things and seeing what works and willing to send a little video and that really kind of keeps the work going forward. That's a great point and I, I think that as you say that Lori, one of the things I'm struck by is when I talk to social workers who are a little skeptical about the technology, I say, you know, ultimately it's not about the technology. It's about the connections and relationships <laughs> and levels of meaning that you can bring through the technology. And so it's not that we're selling tech for tech's sake. It's about those connections and those possibilities. That's what makes it worth it for me, too, is learning from other people like all of you and being able to see amazing things happen with soundscapes that students learn and with possibilities to connect people across distance who don't ever have a chance to talk to each other. Those are the things that I think make it worthwhile for, for most of us. So. I think that's so important. I wouldn't have met any one of you here without some kind of access to technology or social media or any of that. And I'm even from Buffalo. I probably would not have met you otherwise. That's right. Very <laughs> truthful. So. Those are some great closing thoughts, and maybe this is a good time for me to, to make the pitch to say that Nancy Smith and Laurel Hitchcock and I are working together on a book all about integrating technology in, across the social work curriculum and in face-to-face -face and online classes. And it's expected maybe early 2017, and we're really excited about it. The rest of us are very much looking forward to that book. We're sure it's going to be great. Very much so. So th thank you, everyone, for taking time out of your busy schedule to do this podcast and to tolerate our technology challenges early on and keeping a sense of humor, which is, as we've pointed out, probably the most important di digital literacy that we can all have. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Nancy, so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Fantastic. You have been listening to Professors Karen Zagoda, Melanie Sage, Jonathan Singer, and Laurie Goldkind talk about the use of technology-mediated assignments in social work education. We hope that you found the discussion enlightening and instructive. Please join us again at In Social Work.
Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.